0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast
2: series.
3: Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Tonight, Investigations Editor at The Sunday World, Nicola Tallent, will be here with the very latest on Daniel Kinnehan. With staycations on the horizon this summer, should the Taoiseach be travelling to Washington, D.C. to meet the new U.S. President on St. Patrick's Day? Fine T.D. Neil Richmond and Sinn Féin's Louise O'Reilly will be here to discuss the country's first mass vaccination centres look set to open in the coming days. Professor Aoife MacLycett and Dublin-based GB Dr Kanu Mo will join us live to discuss vaccine rollout. And later, almost a year into this pandemic, what does the future look like for live performances and the arts? We'll be joined by Keith Barry. Get in touch on Twitter Our hashtag as always tonight, VMTV. Tonight, we're joined by Sunday World Investigations editor Nicola Tallant for the very latest update on Daniel Kinnahan as he speaks out to defend himself and his ties to the boxing world. Nicola, thank you for joining us. A pretty lengthy statement released by Daniel Kinahan today to Talk Sport. He addresses a number of issues in it. First of all, I suppose he looks at his own links to criminality. What does he have to say about those?
2: Well, he says he's done absolutely nothing. He's just a, a kind of a, a poor Dublin boy that has done good. Um, it's a lengthy statement and it's gone unchallenged. It has been read out in full by the voice of, uh, you know, a, a voiceover or an actor or something. Uh, that was clearly the only way he was putting out anything he has to say. He wants to be heard from start to finish without being interrupted. Um, so quite unusual really for somebody is, who is suspected of such uh, serious crime as he is.
3: Now he says in it, there are no criminal convictions against me, this is trial by media, but just remind people what it is that the Irish courts have said about Daniel Cunningham.
2: Yeah, well, this is what he has been uh, putting out as has his supporters and there are no convictions against Daniel Kinnaghan. That doesn't mean that he isn't suspected of crime and that he isn't wanted. Um, and he is both those things. The Irish High Court has accepted that he is the uh, leader of the Kinnehan Organised Crime Group, which the Special Criminal Court has been told is a murderous group which was behind a number of plots to kill and indeed a number of... Uh, of murders, successful murders. And um, I think everybody in this country knows exactly who the Kinahan Organised Crime Group are. Daniel Kinahan says he's nothing to do with it. He has forged his way in boxing and he's made it from poor beginnings with uh, just, uh, with, with literally just the welfare of boxers in mind um, and that is what he said. He said he's never threatened journalists And he seems to be quite abhorred that he would be, anybody would suggest that he did. Um, And he says that he's still very much involved in boxing and in, in boxing, in fixing fights. Now, Billy Joe Saunders, who's his sidekick at the moment and who is first up for a major big fight representing MTK, I think in May, he has done an interview in the last week as well in which he has clearly stated Uh, on a U.S. podcast that Daniel Kinahan has been the fight fixer for all his fights, all his major world titles. So nobody's under any illusion, but Daniel Kinahan is still involved in brokering these massive multi-million euro deals.
3: Well, joining me here in studio is Fine Gael TD, Neil Richmond and Sinn Féin's Louise O'Reilly. And via Skype, the Irish Examiner's political correspondent, uh, Aoife Moore. But before I come to uh, Aoife Moore, I want to just ask you briefly, uh, Neil Richmond, I know you've condemned um, Daniel Kinnehan and the Kinnahans and their links to, uh, you know, the boxing world in the past, but well, we read in the papers at the weekend about ordinary people living in Dublin inner city and how There are large areas of the city that are now being totally controlled by drug gangs and people living under real fear and a real sense of intimidation and feeling a little bit abandoned by those in authority.
4: Well, absolutely. And that's why we need to make sure that we're investing in those areas. And we saw the meetings last week in the north inner city by Minister of Justice, Helen McEntee and various others. But I think what's crucial when we're talking about Daniel Kinahan is he's responsible. ...for this intimidation. It's his cartel. He's hiding in Dubai and trying to sportswash his reputation. And the ridiculous statement that Nickler referred to... ...has to be challenged and we need to see every single person... ...in the sport of boxing, wherever, condemn it... ...and ensure that he's got nothing to do with any fights coming up... ...because MTK and others tried to tell us last year that he'd been removed... Clearly hasn't.
3: All right. Uh, moving on to another story which has been dominating um, the papers today and the news agenda. Uh, we're joined via Skype by the Irish Examiner's political correspondent, Aoife Moore, because Aoife, we finally have some details now of how the vaccinations for the over 70s are going to be rolled out. You will either be attending, it appears, a GP surgery or a mass vaccination centre. And you had some photographs of one of those mass vaccination centres in your paper today.
5: Yeah, we got some pictures from the vaccination centre in Cork. So you can see there that they're split into small little I'd say, cabins or, or cubicles. They reckon, though, that most of the over 70s will be able to go to their own GP, their own surgery, that they're used to, and get vaccinated there. But these are more overflow places for people who can't get to their own surgery or maybe if the surgery's too busy. And these are, for people my age and your age, We'll probably use those types of, those types of facilities as well when it comes around to us getting our vaccinations.
3: And where else are we likely to uh, see these mass vaccination centers EFA?
5: So the one in Cork, um, there'll be another one that's of a similar size in Dublin and another one in Galway. Then there'll be other kind of micro hubs. We know that there has been a few already um, picked out for places like Nina and Bantry. So we'll see a lot more in uh, smaller towns as well. But the three big ones will be Dublin, Cork and Galway. We also got some information uh, over the weekend and confirmed by the
3: HSC this morning about the timeline. So initially we had hoped that the over 70s would be vaccinated by the end of March. Now we're looking by the middle of May.
5: Yeah, um, Paul Reid was on the radio yesterday and he admitted that the timeline is now off. They had actually hoped at one point that they would have over-70s having their second jab by the end of March. It now looks like the a lot of the over-70s won't be getting their first jab until the end of May. So everything has been pushed back. We know that there was issues with supply and now the different um, advice that we're getting about AstraZeneca, they can't obviously give the AstraZeneca vaccine out the way they had initially planned to in the over-70s. So this has kind of been another bump in the road for the vaccination plan. And it looks now that it'll be the end of May before the over 70s are sorted. So it kind of remains to be seen when everyone else can expect to get their vaccines as well. And briefly, Aoife, some information um, released, I think it was yesterday actually, in the Irish
3: Examiner about those who are travelling into the country in January. 110,000 passengers came through our airports and ports. How many of those uh, were travelling for non-essential reasons?
5: So... I went looking at the figures there um, for the story Sunday and I was just kind of thinking you know we heard so much at Christmas about you know people traveling and it turned out that in Dublin airport alone it was almost 111,000 people that came through Dublin airport and the department were able to tell me that just I think it was 39% of that was classed as essential so 61% was non-essential. As far as I know, they're taking that information from the passenger locator form. You're usually asked on the form whether your uh, travel is essential or not. However, we don't know how much that's checked up on as well. So we don't actually know if people are being truthful on the form. That's another concern that I would have is that you might just... On the hop if you're panicking put down something that you was essential and kind of hope that you'll get away with it because chances are you're probably not going to get checked up on as well. All right we leave it there uh, but thank you for all of that information uh, Aoife
3: Moore there from the Irish Examiner. Um, before we just come to some of the issues I want to quickly uh, Neil Richmond come to the numbers today 829 cases. Is there some concern in government that these numbers are stagnating that they're not dropping as quickly um, as we'd like?
4: Well, the numbers speak for themselves, they still remain stubbornly high. Um, there is some optimism in the HSE that it could drop down by the end of the month to around 400, 200, but I think we would have liked to have been a lot further now. And this. So what
3: else has the government got?
4: Well, it's not just about the government, it's really like where this virus is and where it's spreading continues to be in the community and it continues to be in responsibil- about personal responsibilities, but you see the extra powers going to the Gardaí, you see it in relation to internal travel in the country and that's very, very important. These are in the community. It's up to every single one of us to take control of this. And I think that's where the responsibility is most important at this stage.
3: So this is now up to the public, is it?
4: No, it's not up to the public, but it lands in the government's state that obviously we've extended the level five restrictions to March 5th in line with Northern Ireland. And then when we come to that date, certainly we'd have to consider long and hard if we're realistically ready to move down to level four.
3: Um, I want to ask you, Louise, about those uh, travel numbers that um, Aoife mentioned there. 110,000 coming through Dublin Airport alone, 66,000 for non-essential mm. reasons. And we read uh, in the papers over the weekend about the Dublin Dodge as it's been called. So this is you know, people who re- are residents in the UK using dublin airport to sort of circumvent mm-hmm. you know the stricter rules in the uk and reports of people coming in from dubai on their holidays via dublin airport so they're not stopped when they uh, come into uh, airports in the united kingdom what would sinn fein do to stop that
6: well that's something that has been raised uh, with me obviously the airport is in my constituency and i represent a lot of workers in uh, in dublin airport and they were contacting me and this is something that hasn't been highlighted. They have concerns for their own health and safety because uh, people who are transiting through the airport, if they're, you know, they you they may not be required to have a PCR test. They certainly don't have to fill out a passenger location form because it's not their end destination. And yet they are being permitted to get off the planes and to, to walk around within the confines of Dublin Airport. So, I mean, you know, we do have to think about the airport workers and all of this because, I mean, let's face it, their industry has been devastated, their wages have been devastated and they now find themselves in that situation whereby they, uh, you know, they, they believe that more needs to be done to protect them. Now, I do think that mandatory quarantine uh, has been dismissed far too quickly by the government. I think they need to examine it. I think it's interesting that back in, uh, in May was Sinn Féin were suggesting this, that it should be examined. We raised it again. We raised it again in November. Uh, The just said that they were going to to consider it. But specifically
3: just that issue of people in the UK using Dublin to circumvent the stricter rules in the UK. What can be done to try and and prevent
6: that from happening? Well, I think we need to ensure that we have mandatory quarantine for people who are landing, and that's going to turn people off. The reason people are coming to Dublin Airport is because they can use Dublin Airport to bounce onto another airport and that's not right. That has to be stopped. So but obviously use Dublin airport, quarantine
3: wouldn't affect the No, no,
6: but but again if we have mandatory quarantine they're using it to avoid an area where quarantining is going to be mandatory. So, you know, I mean, if we do that it sends out that message which I think is a, is a clear enough message to send. I think we need to look seriously at, uh, at having that conversation with people before they leave their destination so that they know that they are required to fill out not just where they're going to be landing for their final destination, but anywhere where they're going to be, uh, where they're going to be stopping. And I think we need to stop that because I think at this stage, we know that the virus is transmitting because of people who who are on holidays. We see on the news people coming home. They were certainly not on non-essential travel. We see from EFA there 60% of the 110,000 people were not landing here for essential purposes. So I do think more needs to be done to prevent that because I think the the numbers will remain stubbornly high
3: if we don't actively address this. I want to ask you about comments from your own leader, uh, Mary Lou Macdonald, Uh, last week. I think she was on Radio News Talk and she said that she doesn't think the Taoiseach, Michael Martin, should go to Washington this year. What is achieved by the Taoiseach? not traveling to Washington for our annual St. Patrick's Day celebrations?
6: Well, I think the uh, number one, it's an opportunity to show some leadership. Uh, and I do think that when What every, leadership exactly? When, what do well, do as I say and as I do, uh, instead of do as I say, but not what I do, uh, which we very often hear uh, from government. So I think it is a case of leading by example. As the head of government, I think Micheál Martin has a job of work to do. We know that Joe is Biden... is not
3: part of his job of work?
6: We know that Joe Biden is very committed to the relationship between America and Ireland. And that's fantastic. It's great that we have an ally in the White House. That's not going to change uh, if Aunt-shock is isn't there for one day. In fact, I believe that during the course of the Biden presidency, there's going to be a large number of opportunities for there to be uh, a cross-country kind of uh, engagement. And I think that that's the time to do it. But now in the mid of a global pandemic All when right, people are being told and don't to go 5k in from your home. home then I think he should show some leadership
3: and I don't is think this, that's, uh, that's is it right. Is Neil Martin not showing leadership by considering going to Washington?
4: Well the government as he said hasn't made a decision yet but I fundamentally disagree with Louise I think this is absolutely the essence of essential travel just like it is when the Taoiseach has to go to Brussels for an emergency European Council meeting as you, you said these were celebrations they're not This is a unique privilege afforded to a small country the size of Ireland. Every year, a guaranteed bilateral meeting with the most powerful man or woman in the world. That's not something to be snubbed. And if the invitation, which is a standing one, is coming, of course the Taoiseach should take it. He's not going against the rules. It is essential travel. There's a way to do this properly, and it's not just as some people have dismissed a, a handing over a bowl of sham, shamrock and a breakfast. It's an opportunity to meet a new American administration. Louise is right, an absolutely staunch ally of Ireland, someone who is in tune. But we're facing huge issues with the Northern Irish protocol, huge issues with dealing a with global pandemic. Why would we turn down the opportunity to Please. have the ear properly, and it can't be done over Zoom with the most powerful man in the world? It's just populism for the sake of
3: it. Populism for the. For the sake of it, no, he's not going on a, on a jolly, he's not going on his holidays. I'm not saying this and is nobody, essential. No, sorry, Kira,
6: nobody is suggesting that that's what it is. However, all travel that can be avoided should be avoided. And I think that, you know, Neil is is, is very... Uh, he, I don't think he speaks well of the relationship we have with America if you think it would be damaged by uh, one visit one invitation. I'm I'll sorry, take Louise, it, it could possibly be. be. And if it's Mary Lou Macdonald's Taoiseach, I
4: think she should go bear to. Bear with
6: me. Well, Michelle O'Neill and Arlene Foster have both decided not to travel, actually. They are. They want to show that leadership. So I think, you know, well, it would be... Michelle O'Neill did travel last year, didn't she? No. I don't know. None of us travelled last year. Did nobody travel from Shenzhen last Shinsen year? No, nobody from Féin travelled. No, we didn't travel last year. And we, even though there were no restrictions on travel at that stage, we took that opportunity to show that level of leadership because I do think you should show leadership on this issue because the T is the one who is telling people don't go fight. So should you not from go your to your European
4: Council meetings in Brussels when think, they're talking about COVID vaccine response? I think there's
6: a huge difference. What between is that difference? I think there's a difference between meetings that are an absolute requirement uh, which obviously the European Parliament And you Council don't think this meeting is are, an absolute requirement. I think this meeting can happen later on in the year when the travel restrictions I are. I don't out. think
4: we'll have that meeting necessarily later in the year. Absolutely and I think to that break this chain that's over that's 50 years old would be grossly to, irresponsible. No, and, and you're playing to the gallery for the no, sake of Louise. At least these meetings do you are genuinely, a unique opportunity. Do you
6: genuinely not place any value on the relationship between Ireland and America that you think it would Louise, crumble I place over such a strong value on it visit,
4: that the first opportunity over with a new president, the most Irish president ever. In the, the midst fact of that a we global pandemic, example, I, believe that that opportunity. Opportunity. I
6: believe that Joe Biden will absolutely understand. And I believe that every effort should be made at this stage by the Irish
3: government to simply fare the trip. When do you think uh, Micheál Martin will make a decision on this?
4: I don't think he'll make it straight away. I think they'll have to have discussion with the US administration. They haven't appointed an ambassador here. We have an ambassador there. And if the invitation is coming from the US administration, they'll make it a due course. This is something that can be decided right up to the timeline.
3: Okay, we're going to leave it there. Uh, Neil and Louise are going to be staying with us. And after the break, one Dublin-based GP is going to tell us what the vaccine rollout will mean for his patients. Do stay with us. Linda-Louise are still with us in studio but first Dr Knut Mo joins us on Skype to discuss vaccine rollout at his surgery in Dublin. Uh, Dr Mo thank you for joining us this evening. You work across two practices. Um, Have you been given any detail yet as to when you are going to receive the first delivery of this vaccine for your patients?
7: Thanks, Kira. We have about 600 patients over over 70 in both of our practices and uh, the indicators are that the rollout is going to happen from the week of the 15th uh, starting next Monday. Obviously, all these vaccines aren't going to arrive in every practice on, uh, on the same day. So what's going to happen is that we imagine that the largest practices with the largest number of over 85s are going to receive those vaccine, vaccines first and then over the course of a two-week rolling delivery period that each practice would, would get their supply. So we, w- there's a lot of talk in going on in the background. Uh, we're having IMO and ICGP meetings, which is going to give us the exact details uh, over the course of the next couple of days. But general practices ready willing and able to to give these vaccines and we have our patients primed and ready to be called in at short notice to receive the vaccines as soon as we have them
3: so you don't know quite when you are going to get the vaccines at this point but it'll be some stage over the next fortnight starting from monday the 15th so how long is it going to take then once you get the vaccines to vaccinate those 600 patients or can you tell at this point
7: so it's all contingent on on supply so if we get 100 vaccines they'll be uh, that patients will be vaccinated within 48 hours if we get 300 400 all in one dose those have to be used in 5 days and, and general practice is very adaptable and very experienced in getting our patients in, this is top priority work. We really want this cohort of patients to be vaccinated as quickly as possible. Um, And there is, time is definitely a factor with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, whereas it wasn't so much with the AstraZeneca vaccine, um, which has provided a little complexity, but we're confident that any supply that we receive can be administered without any wastage within the first five days of receipt.
3: Have you many patients, uh, doctor, who are either housebound or indeed bedbound, and, and what are your plans for those patients?
7: So it's it's a conversation that's gone back and forth quite a little bit over the over the past week or so how we would manage um, that situation because really these vaccines don't travel well; they're very fragile and, and may become ineffective um, in, in the very patients we want we need them to be effective in. I, I think when when you ask patients and we've spoken to a lot of our patients who we want to come in can somebody bring them in are they truly bed bound um, or or housebound rather or is it a transport issue We've had patients saying, I, if I have to crawl in, I'll get somebody, somebody will come in. Um, really, ideally, it, vaccines are best given in the practice where we have uh, we are set up to deal with any adverse reactions and that we we're assured today um, that there will be a plan for for the patients who are truly bed-bound and can't um, can't make it into a surgery or into one of the centres. Uh, those details need to be fi- uh, ironed out, um, but it's certainly, they're the most important patients really to us that we want to make sure do not get left behind
3: and obviously within your own practice are you going to be trying to run the practice in parallel to administering
0: the vaccine and how difficult is that going to be many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care
7: Well, it's something that general practice is is very adept at. Um, We we, we are the vaccinators. It's something we really enjoy doing. It's something that we have systems in place. In in fact, with the anticipated flu vaccine um, uptake in, in September, October, we uh, we put systems in place to have online bookings for which may not work for for this cohort of patients per se, and um, but we have systems in place. We can vaccinate over lunchtime. We can vaccinate in the evenings if needs be, and, and certainly we have capacity to ensure those vaccines are used at the weekends if we have to. We in our practice alone, we would have given a, a, at least a thousand flu vaccines this year uh, over a six week period. So it's something we're experienced with. The challenge, I suppose, is the the fifteen minute observation period, which which uh, with these new vaccines is very important to stick to. So we, we will have to uh, I, uh, modify our system slightly, but I, I think this work is priority work. So if, 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 if some other non-urgent work has to be uh, put off for a week or so or, or, or to different times in the clinic, we can certainly do that if needs to be.
3: And I don't think anybody would blame you for that. Uh, thanks for joining us and giving us that uh, update, Dr uh, Mo there in uh, a surgery in Dublin. Um, Neil, I want to come to you. So look, clearly there's still a lot of uncertainty there and yet we're being told this vaccination of the over 85s is starting next Monday.
4: Yeah, the week of the 15th February is what's been said. And this is, as Dr Mo said, it's about ironing out the final details and what GP practices have been asked to do over the last week or so is to put people into the categories, into the order that once they get the green light, they start with the older or more vulnerable people and go through it and as you rightly said to see those who can't travel or who may need assistance when travelling and the HSC have said they will use the defence forces and if they have to in the very rare circumstances send a vaccinator out to someone they can do that but obviously for good medical reasons that's not preferable but as it all is about it's about having an agile system when it comes to vaccinations. There are things beyond the HSE's control in terms of supply, in terms of medical decisions about who to give certain vaccines to. And whilst we are seeing an undeniable slowdown due to issues with vaccines at this stage, there is the potential for a speed-up when new vaccines come on stream and the additional ones made by companies like Pfizer-BioNTech come to Irish stores.
3: Okay, but we did hear the HSC, um, Paul Reid speaking yesterday and Colum Henry confirming Mm -hmm. it this morning. Um, We'd hoped to have all the over 70s, half a million of those people fully vaccinated. So that's two doses Mm -hmm. by the end of March. We're now looking at mid-May at best?
4: Yeah, more than likely. And look, the systems are there to do it. Great work has been done by the GPs, by care homes, by our hospitals to do it. What are you putting
3: that delay down to? Well,
4: the main issue is the delay in in relation to supply. Indeed, AstraZeneca not being just the decision to make sure AstraZeneca vaccine couldn't be put to older people. The fact that the European Medicines Agency rightly took their time in providing the final sign off, that's part of it. But as I said, there is the opportunity that there will be excess vaccines coming in in the third or fourth quarter of the year. And I think we have to be aware that this is a mass vaccination programme for a once in a century pandemic. We have to be agile. Mm-hmm. And to our credit, our health service has been beyond agile at this stage.
3: But we look across the border, uh, Louise O'Reilly, we look at, you know, <laughs> many of us will of friends living in Northern Ireland mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. are vaccinated already. Uh, they're looking at having the over 50s vaccinated by mid-March here over 70s by mid-May but listen to Neil Richmond there it's a supply issue well apparently it is a supply
6: issue for the government but look I think there's a couple of things that, that need to be done Uh, Yes, I I fully acknowledge that there have been issues with supply. It's a bit of a mystery to me why separate supply lines weren't secured as well as as other countries had done. But that wasn't done and that's fair enough. But we need to use this time now. So there's an awful lot of people in the over 70s category and they'll force me for mentioning it, my own parents being two of them, um, who are very disappointed by this news. All right, they're they're going to be absolutely heartbroken. They're people who have effectively not been allowed outside of their own doors. For public health reasons, we know that. But they are are going to be very disappointed. It's not the end of March now, it's likely to be the end of May. So what we want to see the government do is productively use this time. So for example, there are people on the list who should, they want to have a hearing with the government. They want the government to hear from them why they believe they should be in a priority category. I'm talking about people like family carers and
3: childcare workers. So we asked a question. Okay, but let's just go back to, I think, really important, this issue of the over 70s and them having to wait until now, mid-May, as opposed to the end of March. What would Sinn Féin do to try and speed up the rollout of the vaccine to that particular age cohort
4: well, bo- they are yeah.
3: probably disappointed no no absolutely
6: they are they're gravely disappointed um, and I do think it was a mistake not to secure an additional supply line Louise um, being a bit disingenuous I'm not that being that disingenuous to at, at all can only
4: you? one EU country's done that and okay, it with so a it, has, it has
6: been done it has been done no, and I, I think you're overestimating
4: what this process is the procure- Neil the I gross? didn't interrupt no, but you, can can you, you let me I said this the second time you said an alternative production supply and I think it's unfair and it's misleading people about what is achievable a small country our size through the European procurement position has access to five vaccines. One EU country tried to do it getting an unregulated vaccine from Russia. They've now run out of that vaccine it's been proven not to work. So I think you have to state that clearly. So what I said was
6: if you let me finish is that no attempt was made by the Irish government to secure an alternative supply line so therefore we are stuck with the supply line that they have. And that delay for the over 70s is very grave. And for those people, they are going to be extremely disappointed. But you so, can hear what Bonilla Neil Richmond did say so what, what needs to what only needs one to country happen, in the EU has identified a separate happen, supply And they him. failed and in they that attempt. It so. It's a false narrative reason. You
4: need to stop doing that.
6: What needs to happen now is that productive use needs to be made of the time. So. The IT system that the HSE is operating this programme on needs to have investment and urgent investment. It's not ready as okay. yet. The I, clarification needs to be issued for those groups that are on the plan. They need to know exactly where they are, childcare workers in particular. We're okay. told they were in level six, now they've been taken out. So they need to know. There's a lot of work that can be done. It
3: doesn't have to be time lost. Go to Skype because we have a professor in genetics at Trinity College, Dublin, uh, Aoife McLeisett uh, joining us this evening too. Uh, and Aoife, I just wanted to ask you, first of all, I suppose, about um, the AstraZeneca vaccine. We know, I think, 20 odd thousand has arrived into this country and frontline workers are going to be receiving it. But serious questions have been asked over the weekend about if its efficacy against this South African uh, variant. Uh, what do we know and how concerned should we be about that?
9: Well, we don't know a whole lot yet because um, it's still the numbers and the data there are still quite small. So we can't say definitively yet that it doesn't work for the South African variant. But I think we have to be prepared for that eventuality. We have to be either the South African variant or one of the other variants that's emerging around the world or a variant that might emerge in Ireland. You know, we've got such high case numbers at the moment. The possibility that something could emerge in Ireland has to be taken seriously. So um, this is... This is a challenge then for the the vaccination programme. First thing I will say, though, is that everybody should take any vaccine that's offered to them. And that is, uh, you know, that will hopefully offer some protection, even if it's reduced against some of these variants. But I mean, the government strategy, if there is one, is to rely entirely on the vaccine. And I think that's irresponsible. Even talking about the vaccine timelines and those people who have been confined to their houses for such a long period of time now, and there's various people, not only of a certain age, but people who have certain disabilities who've effectively been cocooning since March, those people um, will not be able to move around normally until we get this virus under control. And waiting for the vaccine, I think, is irresponsible. And it's possibly even negligent, because we're still letting you New variants coming in. We heard today, um Killian Gaskin mentioned they found 11 um, cases of the South African variant in Ireland, hopefully contained, but that's, is that luck or is that good planning? We can't really see evidence that the government has been planning correctly to prevent these new, new variants coming in. And we need to crush the cases in the, our own country in order to minimise the chance that new variants will evolve here. And if we get the numbers down and keep them down, then we um, can let those people move around. We can try and have a normal internal life in the country without having to wait for the vaccine. We already have the B117 variant here, the so called UK variant. And actually, it's very concerning that that now is maybe 75 or 80% of our cases. So, as we've seen the cases coming okay. down throughout this month, it's been disproportionately the old variant and the new variant, the B117, just... is perhaps not even being impacted on by the the current measures. Just very, very briefly, if you could, uh, Aoife, there was talk
3: yesterday of a booster vaccine um, having to be made available if you've received the AstraZeneca vaccine, perhaps by the autumn. Is that going to be necessary for uh, all those frontline staff who are going to get this AstraZeneca vaccine now?
9: That's plausible. And it wouldn't be, that wouldn't be, I think, a big problem or a big um, change. I suppose it's, it's quite normal to have booster vaccines. And this virus is a moving target. We have to remember that, you know, this is not something that's changing, not something that's staying still, it's constantly evolving. And we need to get ahead of it. We've been behind it for far too long. So we need to really, if we want to get ahead of it, and we want to just take away all these many elements of chance in terms of importing new variants and having them evolve here. We do need to stop importing new variants. We need to make sure we're catching them in hotel quarantine and we need to get the cases down low so we don't evolve our own new variant here. And the B1171 that we already imported is already challenging for us. All right. Uh, Thank you for that, uh, Aoife McLeish there. Um, Louise, there
3: was talk uh, earlier today, the Minister for Housing was on radio saying construction workers, it looks like, that they will be going back to work on March the fifth. Would Sinn Fein support that?
6: But I think we need to look on the 5th of March and see at what, what stage the numbers are at. And I think there needs to be a robust engagement between those groups that are representing construction workers and indeed the public health
3: officials. So I, we've I seen think that risk today saying that they think, looking at the numbers, yeah, that but they'll But that's be why, somewhere between yeah. 200 and that's why the a risk the assessment needs, needs to back. be carried
6: out so that the public health advice can be tailored to the specific needs of construction. Everybody wants to see, uh, you know, a situation where people can move around Unfortunately, though, With the numbers as high as they are, that's not possible. And I do think that workers deserve no less than to have their workplaces risk assessed in line with public health so that they know and their families know and the people in their community know that it is safe when they do return back to work because these are the things that need to be done now. Plan needs to be put in place now for people returning to work. Test and trace needs to be put in place now. We cannot have a situation whereby more
3: time is wasted and lost by this government. They've wasted too much time already. All right, we have to leave it there. My thanks to Louise. Louise O'Reilly and Iford for joining us. Neil will be staying with us and after the break mentalist Keith Barry and author and actress Claudia Carroll will be joining us. Welcome back. Well, Neil Richmond is still here in studio and is joined by Irish author and actress Claudia Carroll. But first, Irish mentalist Keith Barry joins us now via Skype to talk about his recent struggles and missing live performance. Keith, thanks for taking the time to speak to us. I think a lot of people will relate to what you have to say this evening about your own personal experience because working in the arts has been particularly uh, difficult, I think, because of COVID-19 how did it
8: impact you yeah absolutely you know i suppose the last time i was on stage was march 10th last year playing to a a sold out house in the olympia and then you know the pandemic hit i had to cancel the rest of my tour and you know for me it was kind of strange because i'm a very positive person and I, i put Uh, A lot of strategies in place, actually, to keep that positivity going. So I was fine for the first week or two. But then after that, it really hit me that I'd kind of lost my sense of purpose and lost my way a little bit. Um, And, you know, I suppose it's just the unknown, isn't it? Uh, Not, I mean, as entertainers, we're we're a little bit uh, different, I suppose, than everybody else insofar as we really don't know when we're going to come back. And I really feel, actually, for, you know, the jobbing entertainers who are really, hand to mouth, as as it's put, Um, you know, the people who perform at weddings and in pubs and in clubs all around the country and the technicians as well. You know, all the technicians that I employ when I'm on tour, we don't know when we're coming back yet. Now, luckily for me, I've kind of solved um, to a small extent my issue as far as I found a a different avenue online. Um, But I do know that a lot of people out there don't have the facility to do that, you know.
3: And as you say, you have found a different avenue online, but part of the trade, part of being a performer, is performing to a live audience. It's part of the thrill, isn't it? And I'm wondering what impact not having that had on you?
8: Yeah, well, again, like it was particularly for about, I suppose, maybe six weeks, I really lost my way. And I don't really get down, but I was really down. I was very anxious. I was very cranky with my wife, my kids. Um, I'll say it openly, you know, I just, I probably wasn't a nice person to be around for those six weeks. Um, But then I had to kind of figure out a way just from my own mindset uh, rather than anything else. So I did figure out a way. So, you know, I'm here in a a cabin in my back garden, which I'm lucky to have. And I, I flipped it into a virtual studio. So now I'm privileged that I can perform online. But look, nothing replaces being on stage. And I think a lot of people don't understand that every entertainer in the country, whether it's a singer, a musician, a comedian, a magician, it's in our DNA to be on stage. It's part of us. And I think people don't recognize that we genuinely don't do this for money. You know, I had a lot of very poor days in the early days. So if you were to do it for money, you'd be in another industry altogether. Um, Now luckily for me, obviously, I've had a lot of success over the years, but ultimately, you know, I, I'm I'm hanging on every moment, wondering when I can get back on a stage. I'm in contact with MCD every week, and we have discussions about when we think it might be safe to do so. But we don't have the answer. There's no clarity on that, um, and I don't see it forthcoming either. And again, it's a it's a bigger issue for the technicians. There's such a huge industry. In entertainment in Ireland. And a lot of people, you know, really uh, relay or or rely rather on entertainment as their source of income. And we don't know when it's coming back. So I think it's that unknown, that uncertainty, at least with other industries. They know that when the door is opened, they'll slowly come back. Um, But we don't know. I mean, I don't know. My good instinct is that I won't be on a stage in Ireland before the end of this year, which makes me very sad. And I don't even know if that's true or not. Um, You know, some guidance would be welcoming at this stage, you know.
3: And there's obviously been, you know, as you say, you don't do it for the money, but everybody's got bills to pay. Everybody has a mortgage or rent or childcare. Was that a concern for you?
8: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a a perception out there that uh, well-known entertainers are so wealthy that they could just you know retire or whatever it is and that's just not true you know uh, unless i suppose you're at the really really high end like um, you know, I don't know that maybe the Gary Barlow's of this world, and even with him, maybe he, he's got to uh, work to pay his debts. I don't know. But I certainly, I think for the majority of entertainers out there, uh, like anybody, we have to work. You know, I still have a mortgage. I've got to pay the mortgage just like anybody else. And yeah, we can, we can hold firm for a long time. But then there comes a moment where you have to work. And, and when I say a long time, you know, I probably could have held out for maybe six months last year and then that would be it, Uh, you know, I'd be in serious trouble. Um, And again, I'm no different than anybody else out there. All of my contemporaries are pretty much the same. And, you know, I know a lot of comedians now who are just eat drivers and, and, you know, they're making ends meet, but really their soul is being slowly destroyed by this. Um, And that's an issue, you know.
3: Okay, Uh, Keith Barry, thank you for speaking to us this evening.
8: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
3: Actor and author Claudia Carroll and Fine TD, Neil Richmond are still here in studio. Um, Claudia, I'm just listening to Keith there. I lost my way. I lost my sense of purpose. I was feeling anxious for people. Their soul is being sucked out. That's how he's describing what it's like to have worked in the arts and then to suddenly find that all but gone because of COVID-19. Can you relate?
1: With no end in sight. That's the thing. You know, in the taxi on the way out here, I was speaking to um, a very dear friend of mine, um, an actor, an Olivier Award-winning actor, one of our finest, Pat Kinnevan, And he made the point, he said, I'm proud of the arts community in this country, not just actors, not just performers, not just the people who are out there, but the people who are behind the scenes too the the technicians, the crew, the directors, the producers who work around the clock because we've had a year's work effectively decimated and people are, there's no moaning, there's no whinging, they're just getting on with it. We have no idea when, when we'll get out of this, nobody knows. Um, And it does your heart good to see live events going ahead, live streaming, the creativity that's going on there. It just makes me so proud of the arts community in this country. Um, Of course, nothing's going to be the same as sitting in a darkened auditorium, the lights going down, uh, watching a live show together, that sort of communal experience. But, but it's something, it's just fantastic to see. And it, it, it gives you that, it, it makes you feel like you've had a night out, even though you're at home watching on screen. So um, it has been some will...
3: substitute, but I would imagine there's a very small number of people Fair, working of within course. the arts who have been yeah. in a position to perhaps live stream a play very, or a musical very event. Very, very and
1: only because of funding. You know, I know with in the case of a, a, a play that I had written myself, the Department of uh, Tourism, Arts and Culture were incredibly generous to us. They, we couldn't have gone ahead without funding. But sadly, then the country went to level five after we all paid the price for our meaningful Christmas. And um, we just—it uh, was too risky to proceed. We had to. So just you take had been rehearsing, to,
3: hadn't you, for a new play via Zoom. Via yeah, Zoom. Via
1: Zoom, which was great. Um, it, my play is based on a, a book that I had out two years ago called *The Secrets of Primrose Square*, and it's based on a quote, appropriately, I think, for these times, uh, from Eleanor Roosevelt of all people, who famously said, "A woman is a bit like a tea bag." you don't know how strong she is until dipped in hot water. And I thought, well, ain't that the truth? So it's a 3 (laughs) old. we all had to dig deep and and find our strength. Exactly. You you,
3: you rehearsed on Zoom. You got your funding. We did.
1: We had Um, fabulous, Marion O'Dwyer, Clelia Murphy and a stunning new talent called Megan MacDonald produced by Pat Moylan. Um, but it didn't go ahead in the end because the numbers couldn't. were simply too It was too, high. too risky. It was, we were at level five plus and although there's only so much you can do on Zoom, this particular show um, was a first timer, first time in front of an audience, first time with our wonderful director, Mark Lambert. And because there's a crew of, including the crew, we were about 15 and we thought even live streaming is going to be too risky. We couldn't guarantee social distance in um, in a theatre in order to film. The cases at that point were 8,000 one day. It was terrifying. You just didn't want to go out your door. Um, so... You obviously
3: are one of the probably luckier people because not only are you an actor, but you're also an author. So you have a dual career and therefore a dual income. That's obviously made a huge difference. I can't imagine as many though in the arts who are in that position. Yes,
1: I do. I have a book out this summer and another one to have delivered by then. So I've been incredibly lucky. I realise how how unique that. how how unusual that is, as you say. And um, I'm deeply grateful for it. I mean, I really am.
3: I wonder, um, Emily, listening to um, Claudia speak there and listening even to Keith Barry speak about how important, you know, the arts is to to them as performers, but also to those who appreciate the arts. And uh, it struck me that perhaps the arts hasn't been given quite the same priority that for example the world of sport has been given over the last year to ensure that we find ways um, that allow people to perform and people to enjoy performances would you accept that?
4: I would and that's very fair and I think throughout this period so many of us have sought solace in the arts be it a piece of music a piece of literature an old movie and on the really dark days you look for that and whilst funding has been put in place it's very right that funding doesn't replace the experience and when we do get to a stage where the vaccines are well enough when we can start to reopen society we need to be able to create, uh, prioritise the creative arts who of all industries and I hate to call it an industry it's been the one shut down the longest and make sure that post-pandemic that it's sustainable so looking at the universal basic income ensuring that that funding the one-off funding is maintained going forward be it through the Arts Council or through a media pandemic but that'll require a lot of effort and a lot of discussion and it's important for policy makers like myself that we don't forget that when we start to reopen all of society
3: and that could be a long time off and the one thing I do hear from Keith and from yourself is there's a great sense of uncertainty uh, among the arts did
1: we think we'd be here for one year? I didn't did you? So when do you think
3: realistically, um, Claudia, you'll be back on a stage?
1: Well, when do you think COVID will start to wane? Like, who? N- nobody can know. I never would have thought we'd be a year in this position. Um, it's it's fantastic to see to see shows like, say, for instance, Fair City that are still proceeding, still going ahead, but again, very mindful of social distance of of health and safety has to trump everything. But... What is living I, with that uncertainty like, Claudia. Pardon? What is living with that uncertainty like? Um, it's it's not easy I mean nobody goes into the, certainly from my point of view the acting profession thinking oh this is going to be a really certain rock solid career that I can rely on it doesn't work like that it's a vocation it's not the reason why anybody goes into it but I think we're all just praying for an end to this as soon as we possibly can Can you give those working in the arts any sense of hope I mean will there be an industry
3: at this by the end of this year uh, could he- Keith Barry there um, said, look, just a little bit of guidance. That's what we want. Do you think people will be back performing in 2021? Guidance
4: and support. Yeah, I think the support will be there. I think it'd be irresponsible to set an arbitrary that people will be back in theatres for Christmas. I think that's unfair to get hopes up Mm. and not be realistic that who knows where this goes. But if we look at the vaccine programme, if we look at the public health efforts, I certainly hope that we can start to edge back in some sort of way, be it that live stream that can be put on at a level three or level four and many other things like that. But could we look at 2022? Well, hopefully not.
3: All right, we'll leave it there. I thank you both for your contribution this evening. My thanks to all of my guests. I'll be back tomorrow night at 10. Until then, good night. Stay safe.
0: This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.